uh, in part of the world uh, where hope came very hard. Um, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, in a tiny occupied territory known as Judea, something happened. When part of the world wasn't paying attention and when part of the world just didn't care, something happened out there among the hills of the Judean countryside, out there amidst the plains of a place called Bethlehem. And in the quiet darkness of it all, there was the cry of a baby. And though no one knew it at the moment, the world had just changed. Though no one at the moment appreciated to the full extent what was happening, a light began to shine. A light that has been shining now for 2,000 years. That night, the world changed. God had broken into time and space and God had upset the process of history. God had intervened to do something special in the midst of a special generation of people. And no matter where you come down on Jesus, whether you follow Jesus, or you're not a follower of Jesus, or you've not made up your mind fully about who Jesus is, if you just look at history, and, and I love history, and some of you do and some of you don't, and I get that, and that's okay. But when you look at history, any honest assessment of history lands us at the same place. And when you look at history in light of what happened 2,000 years ago, out there on the countryside of Judea, there in a village called Bethlehem, there in the outskirts of the Roman Empire, that something which happened changed everything. And when we look at history, we can all recognize or should be able to recognize that Jesus' arrival in the world would forever change the world. Though not many people understood that, that moment, that night, they may have had an idea that something special had occurred. Mary might have known something was up. Joseph may have known something was up. Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the baptizer, they may have known something was up. But Jesus' arrival in the world would forever change the world. Uh, a Yale professor, he said this. He said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, and then he asked a rhetorical question, how much of it would be left? He said, if we could remove every bit of history that has the fingerprints of Jesus, that has been influenced by this person of Jesus from Nazareth, if we could remove that from the landscape of history, he says, there's not going to be very much left in the past 20 centuries. Another uh, professor would say about history, he says, the character of Jesus not only has the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice. Now, listen to this observation. This is by a person who is not a fan of faith or a fan of Christianity. It has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and more than all the exhortation of moralists. In other words, another historian looks at 20 centuries and says, you know what? We have all been so impacted by the life of Jesus from Nazareth, the way that we see the world, the way that we think about each other, the way that we think about marriage, the way that we think about raising children, the way that we think about government, the way that we think, the way that we see things, the way that we hear things, the way that we think people ought to treat one another. Whether we realize it or not, 
We have all been so deeply impacted by Jesus. That's believer and non-believer alike. And even in cultures that have moved away from Christian faith, they are still haunted by the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus linger within the peripheral of the cultures of this world still today. This is, this is my favorite though. Listen to this. Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who are among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Jesus, he painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, they received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music. Still, Hayden and Handel and Beethoven and Bach and Mendelssohn, they reached their highest perfection of melody in their hymns, symphonies, and oratories. They composed in his praise. Every sphere of human greatness, every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter from Nazareth. That's looking at history. That's looking at 20 centuries and how Jesus has changed the world. Now, there's certain facts that relate to the life of Jesus. These are facts for believers and non-believers. And I, I think this is so important for everybody to understand. It is a fact of history that Jesus was born while Herod was king of Judea and Caesar Augustus was emperor of the Roman Empire. That's a matter of historical fact. The fact that Jesus carried out his public ministry during the reign of Caesar Tiberius, historical fact. The fact that Jesus was crucified on order from Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in Judea, is a historical fact. After Jesus died, his disciples were hopeless and despondent. They thought that this Jesus movement was completely over because after all, how can a Messiah die? How can the Son of God be dead? But Jesus was obviously dead and so they walked away from the cross that day not believing that Jesus was anything other than just a man. That's a historical fact. Even non-Christian historians regard all of this as historical fact. Jesus was buried. But something happened on the first day of the week. Something happened on Sunday. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And his disciples believed that they had, saw, they had seen Jesus be raised from the dead. That they were witnesses of a resurrection from the dead. And their lives were so transformed because of what they said they saw. They ended up giving their life for what they said they saw. Now, regardless of how we explain an empty tomb. Now, Christians are going to explain it in a very specific way, but even non-Christians have to come up with an explanation for an empty tomb and why the body of Jesus was never, ever produced. Because if the body of Jesus had been produced, the movement would have been over. There would be no such thing as Christianity. There would be no such thing as the church. And we wouldn't be here talking about a book called the B-I-B-L-E because none of that would be in existence. But Jesus... After the resurrection, after the tomb was empty, his disciples were transformed by that event, by an empty tomb, and the world changed. Something about the world changed even more than when that baby cried out there on the dark, silent hills of Judea in Bethlehem. And then as we move into history without money, without army, without a territory, the Jesus movement toppled the greatest empire that had ever existed in the history of the world. It toppled 
that empire that rested upon the seven hills of the eternal city known as Rome. Jesus changed everything. And he changed things in ways that we take for granted. Jesus changed everything for children. Children were not humans before Jesus stepped on the pages of history. Children were property. Children were expendable. That spirit, that mindset which still exists in pockets of our culture still today, that doesn't see children as human, that doesn't see babies as human, whether born or unborn. Before Jesus showed up, People would not even name their children sometimes to weeks after they were born to see if they actually wanted to keep them, to see if they would actually survive. If you were born a female, more than likely, your parents would take you out into the wilderness and leave you, expose you, the practice of exposing them for the wild animals and the elements to kill them, for nature to run its course. But Jesus showed up and said things like, let the little children come to me. Jesus showed children special attention. Jesus was loved by children because Jesus loved children. And in the name of Jesus, orphanages began to pop up. In the name of Jesus, the first Christians, they ran into the wilderness and they began to rescue those babies that had been left behind by pagan moms and dads. The practice of God parenting, where if something happens to you, I'm going to take care of your son or your daughter as though they were my son or my daughter. That all sprung up out of the movement of Jesus. All from Jesus-inspired people and Jesus-inspired teaching. Educational institutions were coming about because of Jesus. The life of monasteries and education and the study of language and the writing of books went to a whole other level under Christianity. Went to a whole other level inspired by Jesus. Places like Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard all began inspired by Jesus. Christians have never been anti-education. Jesus' followers were on the forefront of education. We've never been against science. We've never been against knowledge. We've never been against learning. We've never been against the truth because we follow a Savior who said, I am the truth. And so Christians were on the forefront of education. Education wouldn't be what it is today without Jesus. Compassion. Looking at people who are sick, in need, and dying, all changed because of Jesus. If you were sick and dying in the first century and the centuries leading up to the first century, you were cast aside. You were forgotten. You were left for nature to run its course in your life. But Jesus showed up and he began to have compassion on people who were sick. He began to heal the sick. He began to see people who were poor and he took interest in them. And then all of a sudden in the Jesus movement, in the church, wherever a church was built, wherever a cathedral was built, there was a hospital, there was a place to take care of the sick, put right beside of it because it was inspired by Jesus to take care of the sick and dying. When the plagues broke out in the Roman Empire and the pagan priests and the pagan people ran out of the cities for fear that they would catch the contagion, guess who was running into the cities to take care of the sick and dying? Jesus' followers. Where did they learn that type of behavior? From Jesus. The world changed. Equality. It's such a 20th century phrase. You know, a 19th century phrase. A 21st century phrase. It's a thing we're still wrestling with in our own culture here in America. But Jesus showed up and started talking about how men and women are of equal worth and equal dignity. Jesus changed the, changed the landscape of what would ultimately inspire equality for all people everywhere. Are you kidding me? 
Equality is not a Democratic Party idea. It's not a Republican Party idea. It is not an American idea. It is not an idea born out of democracy. It is an idea inspired by a carpenter from Nazareth whose name was Jesus. Jesus showed up and everything changed. We, we can study that. You can read that. And I'm telling you, an honest reading of history would say, yeah, that's absolutely true. But here's the question. Here's the question. Why did Jesus' arrival in the world change the world? Why? Why did Jesus make such a difference? Why was Jesus different? In a part of the world where people showed up all the time and claimed to be a Messiah and claimed to be divine, what was it about Jesus that was different? See, when we open up the scriptures, because that's what we've been talking about through this entire series, when we open up the scriptures, we find that Jesus, he was Jewish. We Christians follow a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter. That's who we follow. And and so many of us, we look the same, not all of us, but, but when we think about who we follow, we follow a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter that we believe is the savior of the world. He was raised by Jewish parents. He he was raised in a Jewish community. He was raised with Jewish values and Jewish traditions. He was taught the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He was taught Jewish history, which is contained in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. So Jesus showed up on the planet, as we've talked about, part of an already in progress narrative. And that's the narrative we've been talking about through this entire series. We started this series, believe it or not, all the way back in September. And I don't know about you, but this has been one of my favorite things that we've talked about in in years because I feel like this is so very important and it's so very relevant. No matter what your level of faith is, whether you have been in the faith for years, you're just getting started in the faith, or you're just giving faith a shot or thinking about giving faith a shot. Jesus, he stepped into a reality that we've been talking about. That Genesis 1 through 11 is the beginning of this story of God. It is the foundation of the story. It's the framework by which we begin to understand the rest of the story. He understood the headlines that God created. Mankind rebelled. Mankind ran away. But God is coming after us. He understood that. He understood that storyline. In Genesis 12, he knew the story began to transition as God would set into motion his plan to win back his family. And from Genesis 12 on through the rest of the Old Testament, it is the story of God working in the shadows, back behind the smoke and the destruction of war and peace and families and tribal strife, that God is working through all of that, making his way to you and me. God made a promise to a man by the name of Abram that his name would ultimately be changed to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, you're going to father a family. It's going to become a nation. It's going to become a kingdom. And God promised Abraham, he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Everybody say all peoples. The reason I get you to say all peoples is because you are part of all peoples. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You show up very early in the story. See, we love to think about the story of the scripture. We love to think about the story of the Bible as being stories about some other group of people. Once upon a timers, once upon a time men, once upon a time women, once upon a time teenagers and children. But right in the heart of this story is you. And right in the heart of this story is me. And right in the heart of this story is all of us. And the idea begins that someday, in some way, God is going to use 
this nation that we know as Israel to bless the entire world. And, and that's the story. A thousand years after Abraham heard that promise, more than a thousand years later, Abraham's family has become a nation. It's become a kingdom. And about 1,300 years after Abraham, a prophet shows up on the scene, the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah echoes that promise and he says, I will make you a lot, Israel, I will make you a lot for the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? That's you and me. There we are again in the prophets. Can you believe it? We were there in Genesis, and here we are showing up in the story of the prophets. So you thought the prophets were about the Jewish people. You thought those prophets belonged to the Jewish people. You thought it was all about their history, and it is, and the prophets were Israel's. But here you are in the middle of the story. I will make you, Israel, alive for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you know who was living at the ends of the earth? We were. So there we are in the midst of the story, in the midst of the part of the Bible that we've never really enjoyed reading because we wondered what in the world does it have to do with you and me? And it has to do everything with me and you. And it's so good. And, and so I'm preaching better than you're responding, but that's okay. I can amen myself and preach at the same time. I'm shouting myself down right now internally. So here's what the prophet foresaw. He could see a day when the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, would be worshipped globally. That the worship of the one true God would not be confined geographically to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, but it was going to be decentralized and it was going to go global. He would go on to say, arise, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples. Who are those peoples living in darkness? Oh, that's you and that's me, that's us. There we are again. But the Lord rises up on you. The Lord is sending a light and his glory is gonna appear over you. And nations, nations I say, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Boy, who are those nations? That's our nation. That's the nations all around Israel. That's every nation that would ever exist after Jesus would show up. Now, 300 or so years after Isaiah, there was another prophet that showed up, Malachi, and he's the final book of the Old Testament. We talked a little bit about this last week. But the kingdom of uh, Abraham's descendants, you know, they became a family, they became a nation, they became a kingdom, but then they lost their kingdom to the empires of the age. And then Malachi shows up and he makes the promise. He says, my name will be great among the nations. Among the nations, that's us again, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord God Almighty. So in the background, in the shadows, behind all the smoke and the fog of war, and there in the solace of peace and in all of the storylines and the ups and downs that we find in the Old Testament, we are written right into the story from the very beginning. And so God made a promise to a nation for the sake of all nations. And this is the story that the Old Testament is telling. And I'm telling you, I say, Pastor, I, I, I think I'm finally getting the storyline. Great, that's why I keep telling you it every single week. Because this will help you, this will help me, this will help us be able to open up the scriptures and understand what is going on. We will understand the story and we will not get lost in the murkiness of the parts and miss the clarity of the point of the story. 
There will be parts that we don't understand. There will be parts that we don't like. There will be parts that we wish we could edit right out of there. But even in the reality of all of the unexplained questions that we have, we will be clear on what the overarching story is. And the overarching story is God is coming after you. And God is coming after me. And so the Old Testament is preparing this for something. The Old Testament is covering around, you know, thousands of years of history. 2,000 years from Abraham to the time Jesus shows up. That God is preparing the world for something, and specifically for someone. The Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is pointing us in a direction. The Old Testament is pointing us to a person. The Old Testament is promising a savior and pointing to him. Someone who will save the world from sin, sorrow, and death. And as one of my favorite preachers, Dr. Adrian Rogers would say, humanity only has three problems. Sin, sorrow, and death. So I think there's more. Nope, think about it. But after the sermon. And you'll come back to the realization there's only three problems that we have on this planet. Sin, sorrow, and death. And the only reason that there's sorrow and death is because there's sin. And because there's sin, there's sorrow and there is death. And so the Old Testament, they were pointing us to a savior. Micah, a prophet in the Old Testament, he pointed us to a shepherd who would be a shepherd for the people of God. Jeremiah pointed us to a king who would rule, who would rule righteously. Isaiah, nobody pointed to anybody any more clearly than the prophet Isaiah. If you want to read about Jesus in the Old Testament, just camp out in the prophetic book of Isaiah. He was constantly pointing in the direction of Jesus. Isaiah would say, let me point you in the direction of a suffering servant. That's what I'm going to call him. He's going to be a man of sorrows. And he's going to be acquainted with your grief. He's going to be acquainted with my pain and our pain. He's going to know what it's like to be uniquely human. He's going to know what it's like to feel pain. He's going to know what it's like to be betrayed. He's going to know what it's like to have backs turned against him. He's going to know what it's like to be you. He's going to know what it's like to walk in the dark places, in the dry places, in the difficult places. He is a man of sorrows. Let me tell you about him because he's acquainted with our grief. And so we read about this in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, just let me give you just a couple of things that he said. Can I just, just let me give it to you for just a moment. Surely, Isaiah would say, 700 years before Jesus ever showed up on the planet, he has taken our pain. And he's bore our suffering. We read those words and we automatically think Jesus. There were hundreds of years nobody knew who this was talking about. The only reason this is so clear to us is because we're on the other side of an empty tomb. So we go back and we read this and we're like, well, it sure sounds a heck of a lot like Jesus. Because it sure heck is about Jesus. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Are you kidding me? Seven centuries before Jesus ever showed up, Isaiah says, let me point you in the direction of somebody. Let me point you in the direction of this Savior who's going to be oppressed and afflicted. Yet he's not going to open up his mouth. He's going to be like a lamb that's led to a slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he will not open up his mouth. But then he goes on, and after he talks about this suffering servant, this is what he says. Oh, this is so good. He says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. 
After he bears the sins of many, after he's pierced and bruised, after he goes through all of that, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Are you serious? He's going to forgive them, make them just as though they never sinned because he bore their iniquities. This sounds like New Testament stuff. This is New Testament stuff. It just happens to be in the Old Testament. This is why the book is so wonderful. This is why the narrative is so compelling. This is why before you dismiss the Bible, you need to know what the Bible is actually trying to communicate. Because the Old Testament message is this. Someone's coming. Don't miss it. Let's all just say that together. Someone is coming. Don't miss it. One more time at all of our campuses. Someone is coming. Don't miss it. All throughout the Old Testament, there's a Savior. He's going to rescue us from sin, sorrow, and death. Look for him. Where should we look for him? He's going to be a descendant of Abraham. Well, could you give us a little bit more information, prophets of God? Could you give us a little bit more information? Yes, he's going to be a descendant out of Isaac's line and not Ishmael. That's helpful because that eliminates all the line of Ishmael. Yeah, but I'm not through yet. Look for him out of the family of Jacob, not Esau. And then beyond that. Out of Jacob, look for him coming from the tribe of Judah. Because that's where he's going to come from. And not only out of the tribe of Judah, but he's going to come from the line of Jesse. But when you start looking at the line of Jesse, concentrate and focus in on the house of David. Because he's going to come from the house of David. And if you're looking for where he's going to be born, Micah 5, 2 says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And Isaiah 9 said, but he'll be born to a virgin. That's going to be a sign for you. And the prophets just kept on going. Not only did they talk about his birth, but they said he's going to ride in to Jerusalem on a donkey. He's going to be betrayed by a friend for some silver. His hands, his feet are going to be pierced. And the Old Testament is saying, listen, we're going to give you as much information as humanly possible so you don't miss him. Someone's coming, don't miss him. And then we open up the New Testament. And the New Testament message is this. Someone has come. Don't miss it. Someone has come. Don't miss it. And so we open up the New Testament and there's four books. There's four biographies. We call them the gospel or the good news books of the New Testament written Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of them written in their own perspective. Each one of them written in, with different details in mind. But each one of them, each one of them making the case that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament was pointing to. When you read through the gospels, and I would suggest... I would suggest stay deeply acquainted with the Gospels. Stay there. Study them. Understand them. But understand that on every page of the Gospels, every writer is answering the same question. And the question is this. Who is Jesus? That's the whole point. John writes about seven I am statements and seven miracles that Jesus would perform called sign miracles. Why? Because he's telling us who is Jesus. Mark opens up his gospel and introduces us to John the Baptist who says, make way the path of the Lord because he is on his way. Luke begins by introducing us to the birth narratives. But every single one of them, they're answering the question, who is Jesus? That's the reason. That Luke included that night that Jesus was born when the angels announced who this baby was to a group of shepherds. He said this, but the angel said to them, Luke, tell us who Jesus is. The angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Everybody say good news. Good news. That will cause great joy. Say great joy. great joy. 
Good news of great joy. For how many people? For some of the peoples? For how many of the nations? For some of the nations? For one of the nations? But for all the peoples. What peoples? The same peoples that God told Abraham would one day be blessed because of his descendant. And the angel said, all peoples are going to be blessed. That's you and me. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Who is he? He's the Savior. Who is he? He's the Messiah. Who is he? He's the Lord. He is the one the Old Testament had been pointing to for centuries. So after the, you know, all the pizzazz of Jesus' birth, angels and whatnot and magi and their tricked out ponies coming into town, we don't know that much about Jesus. The Gospels don't tell us everything we want to know about Jesus. I, I want to know what puberty was like for Jesus. You know, what was that like? How, how did he navigate being 12 and 13? You know, what was that like? Uh, I, I want to know a lot of things that the Gospels don't tell me because the Gospels are not trying to tell us an exhaustive story. They are trying to tell us a larger story. They are answering a larger question. Who is Jesus? 30 years go by. 30 years go by. We are in the continuation of history. We are in something that God has been orchestrating for centuries. And then around age 30, Jesus' cousin is going to introduce Jesus to the world. John the baptizer, whose father was a priest, Zechariah, his mother, Elizabeth. You can read all about that in Luke chapter 1. But John is down there with thousands of people flocking out of Jerusalem, coming to listen to him preach. Religious people and irreligious people, and he's calling people to turn to God. He's calling children to turn their hearts back to their fathers and to their mothers. And as thousands of people were down there in the Jordan River Basin listening to John preach one day, I just picture him as he was waist deep in the water and he's waxing hard and he's waxing bold and he's waxing clear. He's confronting, he's calling. And all of a sudden he stops. And his eyes lock with Mary's son, his cousin from Nazareth, Jesus. And his heart begins to pound. And he pauses his sermon and he calls an audible in the moment. And with thousands of people in the crowd, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was the last Old Testament prophet. The others pointed to the one they could not see, but believed was on the way. But John pointed to the one who had arrived. And he pointed to what he could see and to what he could hear. Behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He has come. And then it says the spirit of God, the spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness and he's tempted three times by the diabolos, by the accuser, by the devil. And three times he tells Satan, no. And he uses, it is written, it is written, it is written. He's tempted and he walks out of the wilderness victorious. And it's always been a curious thing. Why would the Spirit of God lead Jesus to a place where he was going to be tempted? Because it was very specific. It was very pointed. It was on purpose. There is a story to this. We are introduced to an Adam in Genesis who is there in a garden, who meets the Diabolos and fails, 
who falls into temptation and into sin. But now we are introduced to a second Adam, a Jesus who is in a wilderness, who will face the same tempter, but yet he comes out victorious as a way of the writer saying, this man is a different kind of Adam. This man is a different type of human. He is not like Adam. He is not like Moses. He is not like David. He is not like Solomon. He is not like the prophets. He is not like the great men or the small men of the past. This man, he is above all men. He is the God man. And he comes out victorious over Satan. And he emerges and he begins to preach. And from that day it says that Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus showed up and his message was, you need to change your mind. Most of us grew up where repentance was, you know, cry a little bit, you know, get a little snotty, feel bad about some things, and then just get up and walk out. No, this was intellectual. This was thought. This was evidence. This was take a look at the story. This is weigh all this stuff in the balance. Remember what the prophet said. Look at this man and see where he measures up. Repent, Jesus would say. Change your mind about God. Change your mind about you. Change your mind about other people. Change your mind about sin. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a new day of dawning. Darkness had settled for far too long. And the glory of God's light started to shine. A new kingdom. A kingdom of peace, joy, and love. A kingdom not of this world had now been brought into this world. And then Jesus, I'm going to run out of time, but but you're you're not listening fast enough. (laughs) Jesus, Jesus would spend the rest of his ministry teaching what life in God's kingdom would look like. What life living under God's rule look like. What life looks like when God sits on the throne of your life and my life. Jesus would say in God's kingdom, it matters as much how you feel about someone as how you treat someone. Woo! They didn't like it then. We don't like it now. We just like to fake it. Hi, how are you doing? Great, great to see you. We've got to get together soon. God, I hate them. God, she drives me crazy. Jesus said, not in God's kingdom. Not in God's kingdom. See, you've been worried about murdering people, actually taking a life, but I'm telling you, if you hate them, you're as good as the murderer. That's right. That's Whew. Eye for an eye. No, we don't like it. Republicans don't like it. <laughs> Turn the other cheek. Democrats don't like it. Gee, we don't like this stuff. Turn the other cheek. What? Well, I want to fight back. I, 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 I want to I do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to take up for me. I'm going to. Turn the other cheek. Someone sues you for your shirt. Jesus would say, hey, just go ahead and take your coat off and give it to him. What? He says, this is what God's kingdom is like. You don't like it, you may not like God's kingdom. But I'm going to tell you, when God's rule breaks out, this is what it's like. The why you do what you do is more important than just what you do. Be merciful, forgive, love, do for others what you would have them do. Because this is what the kingdom of God looks like. In other words, Jesus taught, God loves each one of you. So each one of you are to love each other. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Oh. 
The Old Testament showed us Moses on top of the mountain, on top of the mountain getting the law of God. The New Testament, the gospels open up with Jesus on the mountain delivering a new law. The sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount showing us what the law of the kingdom is. What is the law of the kingdom? It's not the 10 commandments, it's not the 613 commandments, but the new commandment of the kingdom is love. It's the royal law of the king. It's the royal law of his kingdom. It is the law of love and there he is, the lawgiver, showing us what life in the kingdom looks like. Jesus one day is preaching and he makes a fascinating statement. Fascinating statement. He says, the law and the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? The Old Testament. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Hold on. Did something change Jesus? Is, is something changing Jesus? The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. In other words, the law and the prophet, it, 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 was, it was good news for one group of people, but it was not good news for all the peoples. But Jesus said, that's ending. There's now good news of great joy for all the people. And it's a message that is so good, people want it to be true. People hope that it's true. And they're forcing their way in. It looks like Black Friday. <laughs> Back before Black Friday became Black Thursday, Black Wednesday, Black Tuesday, Black three weeks before Black Friday. Jesus said, John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, marked a changing point. Jesus said, I am. I'm not here to abolish, to destroy the law and the prophets. But I am here to fulfill them. Because the one they pointed to stands in front of you. Jesus understood himself as the fulfillment of the age, the beginning of the culmination of history. Next week, we're gonna be talking about the book of Revelation, don't miss it. It's the zenith of the story. It's the climax of the story. Jesus understood himself to be the center of history where God's promises and God's plan converged on him. The arrival of Jesus marked the ending of something old and the beginning of something new. I'm gonna jump ahead because I'm, I'm out of time. But Jesus showed up in the final week of his life. There's only four chapters given in the gospels to Jesus's life before public ministry. There's 85 chapters given to the last three and a half years of his life. There's over 20 chapters given to the last week of his life. And there's 13 chapters given to the last day of his life. And so the gospels are taking us to that last week of Jesus's life. And when he came in on Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, the, the plan to kill Jesus was already in full effect. On Thursday of that week, we find Jesus in the upper room. It's Thursday night, he's in the upper room with his disciples. And there, he gives them some of the greatest things that we hear Jesus say. You can read about it in John 13, 14, 15, 16. You can read about it in Luke, and you can read about it in Matthew, and you can read about it in Mark. But there in the upper room, Jesus washed their feet. And he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. He looks at Thomas and he says, hey, when you've seen me, 
You've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what the Creator is like, look at me. Because the Creator has shown up in history as the Redeemer. And He talked to them. And He taught them the things that He needed them to remember most. And then it says that He took bread, He gave thanks, and He broke it, and He gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We've looked at these. He says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. Something new had started in my blood, which is poured out for you. Guys, what I'm about to do for you is because I love you. And what I'm about to do is not for Israel alone, but all the nations of the world. Matthew said it this way, this is the blood of the covenant, this new covenant, which is poured out for many, the forgiveness of sins. It was called new, but it had been whispered about for centuries. The Old Testament writers, they saw a new day. Ezekiel said, I see a day when God's gonna give us a new heart. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is the covenant, Jeremiah said, that God said, I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their heart. It's not going to be a law written on stone that came down from Sinai with Moses. But I'm going to write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their transgressions and will remember your sins no more. not a covenant of law but a covenant of grace a covenant of unconditional no strings attached no cost to you grace a grace that says you can be right with God not because of what you have to do for him but because what God has already done for you it's such good news that you have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. But the good news is you don't have to measure up because one has come who will measure up. One has come who will keep the mark of God's glory and he will die for the penalty of your sin though he had no sin. And because he takes your penalty, you are free to take his pardon, his forgiveness, and you are going to be justified at no cost to you just as though you had never ever sinned good news of great joy for all the people jesus died this is where we'll pick it up next week but then the tomb was empty and if the resurrection of jesus is true jesus is who he said he was if the resurrection of jesus is true In all the shadows of the Old Testament, he was there. In all the smoke and the destruction of war, he was there. When the streets of Jerusalem was ravaged by war, he was there. In the famine, he was there. In the valleys, he was there. On top of the mountain, he was there. He was always there. He was always there making his way to you and me so he could die for you.
Heavenly Father. Lord, we read this book and we know why the writer of Hebrews says it is a living word. It is a word that has power, pathos, passion that awakens our soul, that awakens our imagination. And the best thing of all, it happened. It happened. He died in our place. He was raised from the dead so that we could be forgiven fully and freely. In Jesus' name.